This podcast is supported by Apollo Global Management. Ensuring a brighter, bolder future means investing in tomorrow, today. That's why Apollo is financing solutions to some of the world's most complex challenges. Learn more at Apollo.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to At Barron's. I'm Andy Serwer, and welcome to our guest, Cecilia Rouse, president of the Brookings Institution. Cecilia, great to see you. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. So you're new to Brookings, but I want to ask you to tell us about the institution mm -hmm. and what its mandate is. Absolutely. So Brookings is one of the very few think tanks that is founded on a mission of trying to have an impact on, on policy, trying to have an influence on policy, really inform the political dialogue, the debate through scholarship, evidence, really bring expertise to inform that debate. We do not have a values-driven mission. It is we want to identify the most important policy issues facing uh, the nation, local governments, uh, globally, what are some of the critical issues, and what is the what are the best minds thinking about, what's the evidence they can bring to bear. So it's, a, it's this wonderful, vibrant community of scholars who share that mission. It's, so it's the scholars, it's the staff, it's the junior scholars we have, and everybody just shares this mission of wanting to find ways to improve our, our world. And so how is your work manifested? You put out books, papers, do you lobby politicians? Maybe not, but tell me, so tell me what, what you guys do then practically. So this is an ever-evolving and challenge, big challenge, which is how do we do what we do? So it, you know, obviously it begins with uh, the best scholarship and the creative minds trying to look around corners and identify those issues. So then they have to write that up. So they write them up in a, in a variety of mediums. There's books, scholarly articles. We have convenings and conferences. But we also have to adapt to the changing world. So we have a vibrant website, and there are blogs, and there are folks who post on social media. And so we try to reach people where they are because our, you know, our community really has a lot to say, and we want to help people be informed so they can make good decisions as they go about their daily lives. Now, there are other think tanks in Washington, D.C. Brookings historically has been rated the number one think tank. I'm not exactly sure how they do that, but it has been. What makes this place singular, though, Cecilia? So what makes Brookings just so special is the focus on scholarship, evidence. It's nonpartisan as we try to do our work. We're trying to, uh, again, identify those really big issues to bring the best evidence, the best thinking to trying to find ways to try to resolve them. We want to be a trusted source. We want to be that place where people can say, well, there's a lot of noise, but we want to go to a place that is uh, where we don't think we're just going to be spun something from a partisan perspective, but where scholars who can be trusted are telling us what they know, that you know, the truth as they see it. Now that is how they see it, and we have to understand that you know, there are always complications in interpretation, but where we have scholars that are really committed to calling it as they see it and trying to be objective as they try to further their work. Yeah, I want to ask you a little bit more about that because being nonpartisan today is incredibly difficult. It gets more difficult all the time. How do you manage to navigate that? How does Brookings do that? And how do you plan to continue that going forward? So this is something I actually th feel very strongly about. I believe that 
we have to have diversity in all dimensions as we think about our country, as we think about moving forward. We've got a very diverse country in the United States. You go globally, the world is very diverse. People have very different backgrounds growing up. They have very different backgrounds in their families. They have different life experiences. They have different ideological viewpoints. And we need to bring all of that diversity to bear on the reality of people's lives. So that's just, so one, what are, the, what are those other problems? But two, are, I think to, to have the best solutions that are going to improve the lives of the most number of people, we need to have people with diverse perspectives at the table. So from my perspective, you know, we have an increasing polarized society. That in and of itself is not the problem. What we, have, what we want to do is embrace the diversity and recognize that when we create a policy or when we think about how we're going to move, address an issue, it's going to affect different people differently. We need to understand who is going to affect in different ways and do the best, you know, chart the best way forward. It can look very different in different places. So one of our research programs, Metro, is very focused on local municipality level. And we recognize that that is, that's a, a feature, not a bug, mm. right? That there are, there are different policies can, uh, can work differently in different places. But it's really that diversity of viewpoint that helps us to come up with better um, potential solutions. It helps us to identify crises that may be coming down the pike. Uh, so it's, it's something that I embrace. So at Brookings, we're going to continue doing what we do, which is identifying issues and bringing the best scholarship to bear on trying to address them. But just to follow up on that, I mean, on the other hand, though, there are universal truths. And, you know, that was seen to be very important, not only in the political sphere, but maybe mm -hmm. particularly in the economic sphere. Mm -hmm. So, but those get harder to be recognized in some instances, yes? Well, I, I think, you know, is it harder to recognize universal truths? I think what you're referring to is how do you break through mm. with facts and evidence in this day and age mm -hmm. where people can get information in so many different ways? And that is a, certainly a challenge, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of people are getting their information in very siloed places. There's a lot of misinformation. Uh, generative AI is probably not helping this cause. And I would say that all makes it all the more important to have a place like Brookings where people can go. They know they can trust us as a source of information on any particular topic. Um, but that is a challenge for us to continue disseminating that expertise to as wide of an audience as we can so that people can see us, read us, learn from us, take our information, make decisions on their own, right? They may still come to a different conclusions than we might, but at least they'll know that the information they're getting from us is uh, you know, unbiased and the best that our scholars can bear on a particular issue. Let me ask you a question that seems to be vexing many economists right now, and you're a PhD economist, I should mention that. Um, and that is, of course, the economy is here and people's perceptions of the economy is maybe in a different place. There's yes. a disconnect. Um, to put a fine point on it, the economy is maybe doing better than people think they're doing, I guess would be one way to right. say it. What do you think about that? So um, uh, it, it is perplexing. I don't know that there is one answer that solves that disconnect or that explains it. And this will probably be a conundrum that economists are studying for many years. Um, when I was working uh, as the chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, 
So going through the pandemic, I would also say, I would often say, sometimes I wish I had a PhD in psychology rather than economics because the economy was doing much better than people were experiencing or at least reporting to surveyors. So, you know, some of the leading explanations include going back to the pandemic. We have been through four years. It's been four years. That's a long time. At the same time, we're just, you know, we're just past it. It has, it had a tremendous impact on our lives and people are, are just knitting the, their lives back together. In terms of the price level, like inflation is moderating, but inflation is the rate of change of prices. Price levels are higher. So people are still comparing that to pre-pandemic and that may have, be having an impact on their lives. But at the same time, we know the labor market has been very strong. Uh, we know people are continuing to spend um, and so consumption remains uh, robust. And so, uh, you know, I think this is a bit of a conundrum. I think time will tell, but fundamentally, I personally believe it's some combination of the economy is doing very well because we're pulling out of a pandemic. And in the United States, we had policies that really supported us through the pandemic, which I think helped compared to much of the rest of the world. Same time as a profound impact, where the economy's doing well. Um, but that people are, you know, it, it really did change our way of life or all mm. contending with hybrid work, for example, or, you know, as I mentioned before, price levels are higher right. and that, uh, you know, eventually, hopefully the two will come back together. Not to lead the witness here, but what about income and wealth inequality? Mm -hmm. Could that be exacerbating things? Well, you know, absolutely. I think we've had income inequality that has been growing for decades now. And if you look at middle-income people, they have not seen large increases in their wages for, for decades. They actually did a little better during the pandemic. Again, the labor market was very strong. But it's our income inequality and it's rolling into wealth inequality has been just widening. There are many forces behind that. And uh, I think that absolutely can be uh, also a factor in how people are thinking about the economy going forward. In addition, there's tremendous uncertainty, right? We have geopolitical uncertainty. We still have, we, our economy seems to be doing well, but you know, you've, the media is always reminding us that, that could change at any moment. Um, and we've, I think one of the things we learned in the pandemic is yesterday was good, doesn't mean tomorrow's gonna be good. Yeah. And so I think some of that uncertainty also factors into this the psychological disconnect between at least how we economists see the economy doing and how people are experiencing it day to day. The other thing I've noticed just over the years is people always think that things aren't so good. It's sort of paradoxical. It sort of suggests something about human nature maybe that it's, you know, back, getting back <laughs> to your point about needing a degree in psychology. But I remember someone saying to me, in this economy during the Clinton years, mm -hmm. and I'm like, well, Things are pretty good now, yeah. so it's, it's a toughie. Um, you mentioned serving as the chair of the Council of Economic Advisors mm -hmm. uh, under President Biden. You served under two presidents before that as well. Mm -hmm. So how have things have changed? How have things changed in Washington over this time that you've served in three presidents? That's a very good question. I mean, you know, how have things really changed? From As an economic advisor, I think that the work is pretty much the same. It is to be watching the data. It is to be thinking of creative policy solutions that can address different issues. And it is to be advising the president 
on the advantages, disadvantages of any particular policy that might be considered or helping the president to understand the context or to understand what the economic data may or may not be telling us. So I think that those fundamentals ha have remained. You know, obviously the political climate was, has been very different between the end of the Clinton administration when I was at the National Economic Council, the beginning of the Obama administration when we had the Great Recession, and then the beginning of the Biden administration when we were in the middle of the pandemic. So one thing they have in common is you know, economic downturns, but they had very different causes, which meant that they lent themselves to very different policy solutions. But I would say that from the perspective of an economist advising the president, you know, pretty much the, the work remained the same, which was to, to do the very best at advising the president with the way that I saw what the economic data were telling us. This podcast is supported by Apollo Global Management. As one of the world's largest alternative asset managers, Apollo is generating investment-grade credit, providing greater access to more resilient and diverse pools of capital, and helping to fill gaps in America's financial ecosystem. Learn more at Apollo.com slash private credit. Shifting gears, why do economics matter to the average American and maybe even especially to American investors? Well, economics is everywhere. I go back to the fundamentals of at least economics, right? We have economics are what's behind our income, right? It's how much are you working? What is your income? How much does it cost to, to feed your family, to pay for your rent and to house, uh, you know, to pay for your housing, um, how to help support your children. And so economics in the truest sense, which is how to make choices, how to live within a budget, and how do you stretch that budget to take care of your needs but still have some left over, to have some fun in your life or save for tomorrow. That is the core of economics and understanding what trade-offs are involved as you make those kinds of decisions. And so it's everywhere. We make economists, you know, every person is making the kind of decision-making that we economists think about every day. It could be in how you choose whether to, how you spend your time, um, and, or whether you're gonna buy this milk or that milk, right? So it's, it's every day. And so in terms of investors, they have to make those decisions as well. And there's a lot of uncertainty when it comes to investing, it's about, putting your faith and making a bet in terms of a company, or if I study education and human capital, going to college is an investment in your own, in yourself and in your learning in what we call human capital for an outcome which you hope will be a positive return tomorrow. You have to understand what you think the, the, the context with the economic environment's gonna be. If I'm going to school, will I be able to get a better job because I went to school or how will it enrich my life? And that is the core of economics. So it affects us all every day. I'm sure you follow Jay Powell and the Fed's moves and what's happening in the stock market. But do you weigh in on those things, Cecilia? I do not. <laughs> uh, so as the chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, there's a separation right. between the administration and the Federal Reserve. Okay, that and was your old job. That I'm was my old job, job and my new job. Mm -hmm. I am also not going to weigh in. Uh, you know, I think that the Federal Reserve, they have a, the largest team of economists pretty much in, in the country, and they're very well advised, and uh, they're making hard decisions. They're having to have crystal balls, which I don't presume to have a very good one, 
Uh, I presume to say my crystal ball is pretty cloudy. I was, my staff at the CEA gave me a, crystal, a cloudy crystal ball as a parting gift because, you know, it's, it's hard to know. Our economy is very complex and to be making predictions is, is incredibly difficult, especially coming out of something like the pandemic. But they are utterly uh, qualified. If you were to ask me how I think they've done, I think they're appropriately watching the data, appropriately understanding there's been a lot of uncertainty and, uh, and appropriately being cautious as they try to balance their dual mandate between uh, price stability and full employment. How are you getting acclimated here to sort of come up with a vision as to where to take the institution? Um, I, so the way that I'm going about learning all that is Brookings is by listening to all of the, all members of the community. So I have been uh, conducting a listen and learn tour, which means listening to our youngest scholars and research assistants, or so our junior staff. It involves listening to our senior uh, scholars I was listening to members of our operational teams and middle staff, our development teams, our communications teams. And so I'm trying to listen to all members of the community. I will also be talking to um, members of our adjacent, so other members in our um, ecosystem, other think tanks, other people who may be, you know, out, outside of Brookings, but that are we consider part of our community to identify what are, what are the biggest strengths of Brookings, what makes Brookings mm -hmm. just excel, but what are some of the challenges within Brookings? And then I wanna roll that up. So presidents here in DC have 100 day, they give themselves 100 days. I'm giving myself 100 days. And then I do wanna put forward questions that we should be looking at and developing a way as the, where the community can all, you know, everybody can weigh in, doesn't mean that everybody's gonna be happy, but everyone can weigh in as we as we think through what might be some ways things we could do differently to better achieve our shared vision. Did you have anything in mind coming in though? So I was trying. I'm trying to listen to my the community and to really mm -hmm. understand uh, where the opportunities and challenges are. My fundamental goal coming in though is you know I I went into economics because uh, I wanted to to have a role in public policy and whatever that might be. And I believe that economics was such a wonderful framework for thinking through how to analyze a problem and how to think through potential solutions. So I've always been interested in that nexus of scholarship and policy. And so Brookings was so attract, you know, so appealing, right. being one of the top places where that happens. And I want to help Brookings maintain that and do even better as we go forward, and so it's it's Brookings has been you know leader for a hundred years. I want to set it up to be a lead, continue to be a leader for another hundred years. I guess three years until your hundredth anniversary of the Brookings part per se, but there are earlier parts of it yes, that existed. Exactly. Right, right. Um, so we didn't mention your prior job though, which was at Princeton University as mm -hmm. dean of the School of Public Affairs and International Affairs. Mm -hmm. And higher education institutions like Princeton are under attack from myriad sources. What is the environment, what was the environment like at Princeton? And do you think it's fair some of the attacks that Princeton and Harvard and Columbia and all the rest of these big institutions are, are, are feeling right now? So, I am a big believer in higher education. I think our institutions of higher education are where students, a, a diversity of students go um, 
to be challenged and to learn and to develop critical thinking skills, which will take them forward because that's how we're going to solve the, to, you know, that we have really big challenging problems and that's how we're going to solve them is by people, um, you know, you don't have to go to college to do this, but by people really bringing different uh, ways of thinking, different kinds of analysis, but to be critical thinkers. So they ask lots of questions and get creative about how they're going to potentially solve them. And this doesn't have to be in a particular field. I think one can develop these skills in a lot of different fields. Our schools, our, our institutions of higher education, such as Princeton, have to be doing a better job on the diversity front. That includes uh, by income, uh, by race, ethnicity, includes diversity of thought. So I do believe that they should be incubators where people of who think differently are in the classroom together, and they they may not all agree, but they challenge one another to to think differently and to ask different questions as they learn a particular subject. So is this fair? You know, they're on the front lines of of this kind of thinking and this you know of people who may not think together and think similarly coming together. As institutions have diversified, they're having very different people on campus together. And it's, it's easy to say what I just said, that we should have diverse communities. It is much harder to be in one. And what we have to recognize that too, and have to learn to help people have constructive dialogue and to be respectful of one another. But it is hard, but I think it's important work uh, and uh, I think it's really important that we stand behind these institutions because they are going to be very important for uh, their, their sources of growth, right? That's where a lot of innovation happens. It's where we develop the talent for tomorrow. Um, and, and, and I think they play a very important role in our society. That's an interesting point you just made about, I think this, the universities maybe haven't done enough, a great enough job or gotten enough credit for the fact that they are these incredible melting pots and so, you know, this is sort of a natural byproduct. Now, you can argue that people are coming in and stirring people up or there are external geopolitical events that naturally are making people behave this way. But it's kind of remarkable sometimes that they mm -hmm. haven't been more combustible in some senses, I guess. Well, we had the 60s. I remember, yes. right? Uh, and I you think about too. when yeah. I was, I was a, I've been at Princeton, uh, you know, since the early 90s. And I, at one point I was thinking, you know, I, we haven't heard from the students very much. What's yeah. going on? Right? Young people do that, right? They <laughs> right. question and, that's, right. and that generates change. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I, I really believe it's a broad church. We all have different styles about how we generate change, but we need to have people who are willing to challenge um, and, uh, and listen. We all have to listen, but we're, we, we have to, it takes a, it takes a village. How many different ways can I make these yeah, different things? Right, but right. it really takes all kinds for us yeah. to make the kind of change that we need to make. And final question, Cecilia. And I just can't imagine that anyone, when they're a little kid, would say, when I grow up, I want to be president of Brookings. <laughs> did you say that? Or I think did that? not. Did you ever imagine you would be here? I Absolutely not. I, although I will say that I've always been interested in policy. I was looking at some slides. Uh, my dad was a photographer. He was a physicist, but he liked to- right. A physicist. He was a physicist. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, but he was an amateur photographer. Mm -hmm. And I just, the other night, was looking at some of the slides that I had digitized. And uh, muscular dystrophy was a disease where there were lots of commercials when I was coming yeah. up. And I organized with um, a couple of friends uh, a, a little carnival for muscular dystrophy. I think we raised, you know, $25, which we sent to the Muscular Dystrophy Foundation. But I've always really been taken by how can we do things to help other people? 
And so, as I said before, economics was a nice uh, intersection, and I thought it was a nice framework for how to solve problems. I, I, went in, I went to Princeton as an assistant professor. I love doing research. I love being in the classroom. Um, and so I could happily be doing that at the same time. But I also like actually doing. So that's why I've done three tours in the White House. I also like trying to apply it. So Brookings is a natural place for me to be at this moment. I would never have imagined it. But I do love its mission. I share that with the rest of the community. And uh, I couldn't be more honored to be here. Well, good luck with it. Cecilia Rouse, president of the Brookings Institution, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. This is At Barron's. I'm Andy Serwer. We'll catch you next time. The production team for At Barron's is Ellie Esmailadu, Joe Lusby, Kinga Rojak, Rebecca Bisdale, Katie Ferguson, and Laura Salaberry. The executive producer is Melissa Haggerty. We'll be back with a new episode next week. This podcast is supported by Apollo Global Management. By providing companies with access to flexible financing solutions and partnering with management teams, Apollo is there every step of the way to drive positive outcomes for businesses and power economic growth. Learn more at Apollo.com.